Today, Pastor Jamin continues our summer reading series from a book entitled, To My Friend Who Left the Faith. You often hear people outside of the church or leaving the church say that the church is just full of hypocrites. Well, Jesus didn't like hypocrites either. But what exactly is a hypocrite? We're going to look at that this morning. So take a moment now and prepare your heart for today's service. But I love a cover band. I, 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 a good, let me, let me just set that straight, a good cover band. So, uh, when uh, we were on vacation the other week, I was walking through Dollywood, and we were going from one roller coaster to another roller coaster, because that's what we do. And, um, and I could hear this music from a distance, and as we're walking, it get cl- closer. I'm getting closer to it. And they're covering these songs from the 80s and 90s when music was good. And I'm thinking... Man, I man, this is great. So I'm singing along with these songs loudly because I like them, and the cover band is doing a great job. And two, if you can embarrass your kids, that's more extra, extra brownie points, right? I mean, that's just that's just good stuff. But I love a good cover. But it, the, if they're covering the original artists and they're doing a great job and paying respects to that original artist by covering their song well, then kudos to them, right? But if they're not covering the original artist well then it, they'd probably just be good if they stop, right? Just don't be a cover band in that, in that situation because you're not, you're not doing justice to, to the original. So let's just, let's just stop. We're in uh, week three of our summer reading series where we're looking at a book or we're gleaning from a book that was written by a guy, by an author, pastor by the name of Wade Bearden. The book's called To My Friend Who Left the Faith. And, you know, we've looked at this aspect of deconstruction, deconstructing the faith, deconstructing Christianity, deconstructing the church. You see it across social media platforms. It's not a new idea. We said that, but it's, it's a louder idea now because of social media, because of platforms. Um, but, uh, but we've looked at what deconstruction is, and we've said that there's two sides to this, this series. We're talking to those of us who know people who are asking questions, who are, quote, unquote, deconstructing, who are looking at things. How do we respond well to these people? We want to respond well to them. Uh, For those that are asking questions, for those that are trying to decipher what is this faith all about, the hope is that I can give you some things to think about in regards to kind of the the bigger areas that most people deconstruct around. And just give you some thoughts and give you some things to think about. We looked in week one, we looked at the parable that Jesus told of the prodigal son. Um, we, we said it was really a parable of two prodigals um, because even the older brother living in the home was a prodigal because he had wandered away from the heart of his father. Um, but we talked about the fact that in this story that Jesus told, it represents every dynamic that we're looking at in this series. You've got someone that walked away. You've got someone that didn't handle the one walking away well. And then you've got the main character and that's the father. And we looked at the extravagant love of the father that even the one who is for the, for the person who is wrestling in their faith, the Father loves them. For the person that's wandering and walking away from it all, the Father loves you. For the one that's having a hard time accepting the one who walked away, the Father still loves you and He wants to embrace you. And, and, and the, the, that love, the Father wants us to have that love and walk in that same love in our life. Last week, we looked at the, the idea of doubt and uncertainty. We talked about the fact that questions are not an, not a bad thing. The admission that we have questions and us exploring and trying to look at, that's just us saying, I've got room for, to know more. I've got room for growth. I've got room to, to understand more. But the thing about our doubt is that we have this spiritual enemy who wants to use our questions and use our doubt to push us away from God. He wants to pull us away from our faith. 
So that's how he wants to use it. But the good news is the graciousness of our God through Jesus Christ, God can take those questions. He can take that doubt. He can take that uncertainty and he can cause us to grow even stronger in our faith. So we said that to us who may know someone that's asking questions, that's wondering, that's whatever may be going on in their life to do what Jude said, the brother of Jesus. And that is to have mercy for those who doubt, to give them space, to let them ask questions and to do everything we can in in our power, in our strength, in our knowledge, to help them in their questions, to answer them, to, to point them to where they need to point for, to be pointed for those who have questions. We said the best place to start is with Jesus and his resurrection. Because here's the thing, if Jesus is real, and I believe he is, and if his death and his resurrection is real, and I believe it is, then if that's the case, that makes Jesus worth following, even if we don't understand it all. And so, so that's where we were. This week, we're going to go into another obstacle, another issue, another thing that kind of leads people to, to question, leads people to walk away from faith, and that is this issue of hypocrisy, being a hypocrite. Hopefully you've never been called a hypocrite by someone before. Maybe you thought someone was a hypocrite before, but hypocrisy, it's a, it's a real issue. And unfortunately, when people, some people think of the church and they think of Christianity, all they think about is scandals. They think about abuse. They think corruption. They think judgment. They think hate. They look at the church and they look at how the church itself, it can't even get along with each other. The church church can't even get along within itself. Why would I want to be a part of something that can't get along with itself? If Jesus, the Jesus that the church talks about, the Jesus that the Christian faith talks about, they say that this Jesus is a Jesus of grace and truth. He's a person of grace and truth. He's a God of grace and truth. If he is that, why are so many of those who are part of this faith people that are filled with hate and lies? And that's a great question. I heard the story of a, pa- a guy that was a pastor. He, he chose to walk away from his pastorate. He walked away from his church. He walked away from the faith and he declared himself an atheist. He says, this God that I've been preaching about, I don't really believe he's even real. And he told his wife, <laughs> it didn't go well. They got divorced. Um, he told his mom, he figured it was going to be the same. She was going to cut him off have nothing to want to do with her child anymore. Her response surprised him. Now, it may not be the response that you're thinking it's going to be. Her response, maybe you're thinking, well, she just loved him and as a mom would do and just accept him even though he's made this decision. The mom actually decided that she was going to walk away from church, walk away from the faith and call herself an atheist as well. And he shares that his mom made this statement in regards to her doing that. And after her doing that, she said, it's wonderful because I don't have to hate anymore. She said, it's wonderful to be free of this religious burden because I don't have to hate anyone anymore. To which my question would be, were you really a part of following Christ? Because following Christ is not about hate. That's not what it's about. Of course, hate isn't the only thing that makes people look at Christians and say they're hypocrites. There's other things. There was a podcast episode that I heard is a podcast called Good Christian Fun. Not endorsing it, but 
They had a guest on there. His name was Travis McElroy. And he began to talk about reasons why he was no longer a Christian. Why he grew up in church, grew up proclaiming to be a Christian, but walked away from it all. One of the things that he said caused him to do it was he went to his pastor as a teenager and he began to express to his pastor problems he was having with lust and trying to get some help navigating that issue. His pastor gave him what he thought was great advice. Helped him out a lot in having to navigate that and deal with his lust. But it wasn't long after that that his pastor had an affair on his own wife. And so it caused him to think, well, if it's not even good enough for him to follow, why should I follow it? This same young man's mother worked at, a, at, at the church. She was the church's secretary admin assistant. When this Travis was a young adult, his mom, still working as a church secretary, she was diagnosed with cancer. She was on the church's insurance, or the church paid for her insurance, where her insurance got really expensive because she was diagnosed with cancer. So the church leadership decided they wanted to pull her insurance benefits because it was too expensive for the church. So Travis looked at that and he began to think, I know atheists who are kinder and gentler than people in the church. And he didn't want to have anything to do with faith anymore. We call the message of Jesus Christ good news. And if the message of Jesus is good, why are there so many versions of faith that are so not good that people want to walk away from it or don't want to have anything to do with it in the first place. Why is that the case? Here's, here's what I hope to help you understand this morning. If you have a problem with hypocrites, I want you to, to let you know about something if you didn't know this. Jesus didn't like hypocrites either. He really didn't. And we're going to go to Matthew chapter 23 and we're going to see where he gives some pretty harsh correction to the Pharisees in regards to what it means, what it truly means to be a hypocrite. And then I want us to look at this whole idea of hypocrisy and to to make us think about what we're looking at when we call people hypocrites and then what people may actually be dealing with too in their life as well. Matthew, Matthew was a tax collector. He was someone that his life was redeemed by Jesus Christ, transformed. And he wrote this gospel, Matthew, we're going to be in chapter 23. He gives us some insight. He shows us this instructions, correction that Jesus brings to the Pharisees. And he's talking about the Pharisees, he's talking to the people around him at first and telling them about the Pharisees. And he tells them this in verse five. We're going to come back to the beginning. Let's start at verse five. He says, everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra wide prayer boxes. I'm in verse five with scripture verses inside. They wear robes with extra long tassels. So these were these things they, they would wear and they would put these law, uh, the, these scriptures, these promises, these laws and these words from the prophets. They'd have them in boxes. They'd have them as tassels hanging off their garments. He said they have all these things on their robes. They love to sit at the head table at banquets and in the seats of honor in the synagogues. They love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces. They love to be called rabbi. They love to be recognized. It's all about the show for them. And then Jesus goes on and he begins to give what are known as the seven woes to the Pharisees. And he calls them six different times. He calls them hypocrites. I just want us to look at a couple of them. It's Matthew chapter 23, jump to verse 25. 
He tells him, he says, and he's being very stern here. That's why we see exclamation points throughout this. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, you Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you're so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're filthy, full of greed, self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. Then he goes on and he says, What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, you Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you're like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. And he's he's making a point. You're putting on a show. See, when, when people heard this word, that's what they thought. That was the image they got. The gospel writers are, it's basically the only place that we see the word hypocrite throughout. And it's the gospel writers who point out where Jesus is using this word. The word in the, in, in the Greek language, the word in that historical context was a word that was used to describe people who would put on a mask and portray another person on a stage in a theater. So when people were out and in in, in walking around in the crowd and they would see one of these people, they would begin to say, Hippocrates, Hippocrates, hypocrite. It's like when we, if you're out or you're traveling or you're on vacation or someone and you see someone that you've seen on the big screen or someone that you've seen on the small screen and you say, actor, hey, there's a celebrity, there's an actor. This is who they are. This is what they're talking about. And scholars tell us that this is, according to their knowledge, this is one of the first times that anyone used this word outside of the context of theater. And Jesus is looking at these people and saying, you are putting on a show. And that's what a hypocrite is. It's all about the showiness. It's all about saying, look at me and what I can accomplish. Look at me and how well I do. When really on the inside, there's no heart and there's no relationship with the Father. It's all about the show. You're doing it all. He's looking at the Pharisees and saying, you're doing everything you're doing for the approval ratings. To get people to look at you and approve you as a great follower of law. But Jesus says, really, inside of you is lawlessness. Because it's all a show. But here's the thing about a hypocrite. Hypocrisy is not just a Christian problem. It's not just a church problem. It is a human problem. There's hypocrisy in every category of life. Every area you look, there's hypocrites. There's people who proclaim some things on television sets, and you find out later they're living something totally different in their life. Hypocrisy is a human problem. Why? Because sin is a problem. Okay? Because sin is a problem. Let's look back, jump back to the beginning of Matthew, Matthew chapter 23. This is where Jesus begins his conversation. I want, you to, I want us to see what he says to him. He says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the religious law, the Pharisees, are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So here where, where they lived in that day, those guys were the official interpreters of the law, interpreters of the law. 
I'll get my grammar correct, sir, at, point, at some point. But he says this, so practice and obey whatever they tell you. So there's something important about the aspect of what they teach, right? What Jesus is saying is they have an understanding of what God has called his people to in relation to him and in how to treat others. They understand that. Their problem is they don't understand the purpose of it. They don't understand the purpose of why it was given. He keep, that's why he keeps going. So practice and obey what they tell you, but don't follow their example. <laughs> For they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and they never lift a finger to ease the burden. What Jesus is saying is there is an aspect of what God has brought through the law that he gave to the old covenant, to the the nation of Israel. There's an aspect of that law that points to a morality that is good. That points to a morality of God, our creator who created everything. That points to the morality of his nature. And it points to what we are called to in the morality of this life. But there are religious burdens that have been brought on that are not good. And then there are ways that we are using or the Pharisees are using that law as a standard to measure people's lives and to measure people up to that standard rather than using that standard for them to see how sinful of a person they are. And that's what it was for. And so Paul, Paul began to write too and began to create, not because Jesus didn't do it, but because the teaching needed to continue. And so he began to write letters to the churches that were being birthed to explain more about this because there was still confusion about the whole aspect of all of that. So he begins to write his church to the letter in Rome. And so he starts this letter in Romans chapter one and he begins to explain how grateful he is for Jesus Christ. How grateful he is for what Jesus has done and the good news of Christ. And then he goes into that letter in Romans chapter one to point out there is sin in our world. And there's a sin in this world that God does not like. There's a sin that he hates. There's a call, there's a, there's a drawing that he's trying to do to people, but they're ignoring his call, they're ignoring his draw, and they're going towards this life of sin. And God hates sin. That's why last week we, we looked at Jude, when, when he was talking about have mercy on those who doubt, and there was that verse, verse 23, let's look at it again. How he ended that verse, he says, show mercy still to others, but do so with great caution. What? Hating these sins that contaminate their lives. Hating the sins that contaminate their lives. The, the word there, the contaminate, the context of that Greek word, there was one commentator that said this about, about what Jude is saying by using that word contaminate in regards to sin. He's saying, avoid all contact with sin so that it does not contaminate you. In fact, he tells you this about sin. He says, so you should hate sin. And I understand this next statement is disgusting, but this is how we should hate sin. Hate sin as you would loathe filthy undergarments stained by human excretions. That's what the context of that word in the Greek means. And that's what Jude was saying in regards to sin. And that's what Paul is saying when he gets into his letter of Rome. And so, so just a caveat, just a note, this is, people have a problem where people will call followers of Christ hateful people. They hate, they hate, they hate. There is a difference in hating sin and people. 
Intolerance of sin is not the same thing as hating people. Now, do we demonstrate that incorrectly at times? Yes, absolutely. I will not deny that. The intolerance of sin and the hatred of sin come across as, can come across as hate to people wrongly. And we should be very careful of that. But there is a difference. God does not like sin. He hates sin. We should not like sin. We, we should hate what it does to us in our soul. And so Paul is writing this letter and he's telling us, so we hate it. And one day there will come a judgment of it. And God will be the one that brings the judgment of it. And he's pointing out to those who want to bring judgment on other people because of their sin, rather than love them to move them to Christ. He's saying it's God's place, not our place. All right. So he goes into Romans chapter two, and I want us to see some things from Romans chapter two, Romans chapter two, verse one. He says this, he's talking to those prominent Jewish background. You can think you can condemn such people, but you're just as bad. You have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself for you who judge others do these very same things. And in his writing, he goes on and he's talking to those of the Gentile world, those who are new to faith through Jesus Christ. And he's letting them know you have had this nature within you that has drawn you to understand there is a right way of living and a wrong way of living. You have had this nature within you that has been pointing you to God's morality, to God's moral law. You just didn't realize where it came from, but it comes from your creator. It points you to this moral aspect of his law. It's coming from from the creator, but he's telling those who had been a part of the faith, those who were part of the early covenant, he's letting them know that because you know that moral law or you know that law and you consider yourself an expert in that law and in that word, it doesn't mean that you are as great as you think you are. (laughs) Because you can't live up to that standard either. That's the whole reason Jesus had to come. And so he goes on in his letter We jump down to verse 17. He says, you who call yourselves Jews, you are relying on God's law and you boast about your special relationship with him. You know what he wants. You know what is right because you've been taught his law. You are convinced that you are a guide for the blind and a light for people who are lost in darkness. You think you can instruct the ignorant and teach children the ways of God. For you are certain that God's law gives you complete knowledge and truth. And so that was their problem. They were trying to instruct people to be like them when they should have been pointing people to Christ. He is the light. He's the God. He's the one that leads out of darkness. And he says, well, then if you teach others, why don't you teach yourself? You tell others not to steal, but you steal. You say it's wrong to commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? You condemn idolatry, but do you use items stolen from pagan temples? You're so proud of knowing the law, but you dishonor God by breaking it. No wonder the scripture says the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you. We could look at this in the church today and we could say, no wonder people don't want to have anything to do with the faith because of how the church portrays it. 
It says, the Jewish ceremony of circumcision has value only if you obey God's law. And not to make anyone uncomfortable because he's going to use that word again several times here. But this was kind of the thing that, that Paul had to deal with, with, with those that were bringing the religious burden of the law. It was all about circumcision. That was, that was, they said, well, you're not really a follower of God unless you have circumcision. And, and while that was an outward sign, I have no idea. But circumcision, unless you do that, that's what made, and Paul said, no, no, that's a religious burden. That and the ceremonial laws that God want, that, that, that they wanted to bring in. No, those are all religious burdens. Those, that's not it. And so Paul is saying, if you don't obey God's law, you are no better off than an uncircumcised Gentile. If the Gentiles obey God's law, won't God declare them to be his own people? In fact, uncircumcised Gentiles who keep God's law will condemn you Jews who are circumcised and possess God's law, but don't obey it. In other words, what he's saying is not about this religion burden of that. It's about the relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And if you're not walking through that and you're trying to be with God because of this act, you're missing it. You're making yourself a hypocrite. He goes on, he says, for you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you've gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by God's Spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God. This is is the key. Not from people. That's the difference. See, God, if we go back to to the Israelites and to this early covenant, God did not give rules to the Israelites or law to the Israelites to establish a relationship. That's, that's not why he gave it to them. The relationship came first. God is a God of relation. He wants to be relational. He was being relational with Adam and Eve from the very beginning in creation. He established a relationship when he established, with Abraham when he established the early covenant. The relationship was there before he ever brought the law. But then God gave these directions to show them who he was, to show them how to relate to him and show them how to treat others. He did not give them that to use as a means to judge one another and to judge another person. Does he like the Pharisees? We were in the church. We were followers of Christ. If we make the assumption that having a revelation and a knowledge of the truth, then we think because we know the truth, it becomes our business to set those outside of the truth right. It is our business to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. But how we do that is important. The purpose of the whole law, and Paul talks about this in his letters to Rome, Galatia, Colossians, The purpose of it was to show us how sinful we are. It's not a measuring rod for us to look at others and see how they measure up. It's it's, it's for us to see how sinful we are and how much we need Christ and what he did for us. 
That's the purpose of it. Now get this, the Israelites, they could not behave themselves into a relationship with God. The law wasn't given for that. It was not given for them to behave themselves into a relationship with God. So for anybody seeking, asking questions, wondering, deconstructing, whatever the case may be, it's not what you do that earns your relationship with God. It's what Jesus Christ has already done for you. Right? But understand this too. The Israelites could not misbehave themselves out of God's love. Now they misbehave themselves out of his covering, but they never misbehave themselves out of his love. His love was always pursuing them. Never stopped pursuing them. It's the same love that Jesus showed us of the father in the parable of the prodigal. His love was always there. His love never left. Paul's, the, the, the reason he started writing these was to demonstrate that apart from Christ, we are all under the dominion of sin. Outside of Christ, we're all, we're all sinners. That's the issue. And apart from Christ, we're falling short of God. And so by doing that, we miss a true relationship with God. And if we don't represent the right way to relationship, then we're contaminating the reputation of God as well. Now, so just to reiterate, for anybody that calls someone a hypocrite, if it's because they're being showy and just trying to live outside one way and inside they're different, then you're right. Jesus doesn't like that either. Paul doesn't. Paul talked about how Jesus didn't like that and how we need to understand that. But I want you to think about something. If you're one that uses hypocrisy as, as, a, as, a, as a means to maybe not want to be a part of the faith. When you acknowledge that that's wrong, you're acknowledging that there is some type of morality that is out there. You're acknowledging there, there is an ethics that exists that people are falling short of. So here's the thing. If there is an ethics, if there is a morality, if there is something that we are all falling short of, wouldn't it be better than, than rather than walking away from that completely to explore what's behind that ethic? Better yet, who's behind that ethic? This is exactly what C.S. Lewis did. If you've never read his book, Mere Christianity, it, it's, it's a heavy read, but it's good. You might have to read it several times, but it's good. I'll give you a few things that he points out in this book. He says this. He says, the law of gravity tells you that tells you what stones do if you drop them, right? Law of gravity. I drop the stone, it's going to fall, right? There's this, but he says, there's this law of human nature that tells you what human beings ought to do. And they don't. What's he saying? He says, there's something inside of us that says there is an ought to. You ought to live like that. I ought to do this. I ought not to do that. You ought not to do that. There's an ought in us, right? The world calls it a conscience. He goes on and he writes and he says, it begins to look as if we shall have to admit that there is more than one kind of reality. That in 
this particular case, there's something above and beyond the ordinary facts of men's behavior. And yet, it's quite definitely real. It's a real law which none of us made, but which we find pressing on us. C.S. Lewis was an atheist. He did not believe in God. But because there was this something on the inside of him that said there is morality that exists, where does this morality come from? It pushed him to explore. And the only answer he could find, he shares it with his readers, and I'll share it with you. I want to convince you of this. That that pressure is the that that pressure is the gracious presence of God. And that pressure that we can't escape, that is universal in every single culture, he says, is not God pressing on us so we will be better people. Right? It's God pressing on us so we will acknowledge and recognize God. That's our, that, that our mouths would be silenced and we'd realized, we would realize there is a law. There is a standard and we cannot attain and we cannot maintain it consistently. He says, and that all the universe and all the people in the whole earth are silenced in the presence of God. So we all fall short. Yes. And here's the thing. We're all a mess. We've just got to admit that I'm a mess, you're a mess, and we act out in our mess sometimes. But here's the beautiful thing. God loves us in our mess. He loves you in your mess. He loves those outside of relationship with him, outside of Christ. He loves them in their mess. If that's you, he loves you in your mess. And his Holy Spirit wants to draw you to him. Look at what Paul says, Romans 3, 28. He says, so we're made right with God through faith, not by obeying the law. You're saved through faith by grace, right? Through the grace of Jesus Christ, putting your faith in him, you are saved. It's not by anything you do. But then he says this in verse 31. So if we emphasize faith, does this mean that we can forget about the law? No, of course not. In fact, The only way we have faith is only when we have faith that we truly fulfill the law. How's that? Because the faith is in Jesus Christ. And what did Jesus teach us? When he sat down or when the Pharisees were attacking him and they were asking him, what's the law? Sum up the law. Tell me the two greatest commands of the law. Jesus looked at him and said, well, the law can be summed up this way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. The key ingredient to that whole summation is love. Love God with everything. Love people around you the same way that you won't try to love yourself. And you hope they love you. And then Jesus, before he went to the cross, he looked at his disciples and he told them, he said, people will know you are my disciples. They will know you follow me by how you love one another. And then he tells them this. He says, a new command I give you. Love each other the way that I love you. 
But it's a sacrificial love. It's an unconditional love. And see, here's the thing. It takes that whole morality, that law that we know that's there, that Paul says we can't ignore it. But then if we take what Jesus has taught us, we say, that, that law, will, it's not a religious burden. I'm not asking you to do something to be a part of the faith. It's I'm taking that morality that God has put in place. And if I love others, I'll take care of that. I'm not going to kill you if I love you. I'm not going to steal from you if I love you. I'm not going to lie to you if I love you. Some of you say, well, no, I, I lie to people because I love them. <laughs> oh, no. no. Husbands, no. We're getting that wrong. Bearden made this statement. He says, grace empowers obedience. Obedience doesn't empower grace. As a result, we can't expect to see everyone's obedience journey looking the same. We all begin at different places. And that's why we love. So even as we know the truth, love love will cause us to take that truth and bless others. Hypocrisy will cause us to exalt ourselves in that truth. But love will cause us to bless others in that truth. And we understand we're all at different starting points. We're all at different places. And we're all growing. And we're all learning. And that's the amazing thing about the church. We've got to remember this. The church is a divine concept that was established and put in place by an infinite God and then was given to people who were finite to lead it and to fill it. So we cannot expect finite people to be perfect in something that is created by God who is infinite and perfect. We can't expect that. Bearden says this in his book. He says, if a church is doing what it's supposed to be doing, then we're going to see a group of sick people getting better, but still feverish from time to time. I think that's a beautiful explanation and beautiful visual of the whole process. And get this, the group of Pharisees that Jesus looked at and said, you're blind guides, you're hypocrites. When Luke's writing his book in Acts and he's talking about the birth of the early church and everything that's happening, Luke tells us that some of those Pharisees began to follow Christ and became a part of the early church. Because God's love was there to them. Even though he told them what their hypocrisy was doing, it didn't mean God didn't love them. And his door wasn't still open to them. The the doors of the early church were open to the oppressed. And they were open to the staunchly religious. (laughs) And they were open to everyone all around that. Because everybody needs the grace of Jesus Christ. And everybody needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the good news. And here's the thing that we've got to remember too. Christianity. It's not about calling people to be judgmental. We're not measuring people up to a standard. We're loving people to God. 
And Christianity is also not about the people who call themselves Christians. Christianity is about Christ. It's about Christ. The cornerstone of Christianity is not the people who call themselves Christians. The cornerstone of Christianity is Jesus Christ. So if you know anyone, if you're one that's considering walking away from church and from faith because of people, I want to challenge you on something. You're putting your faith in the wrong place. Now, that's not to use as a cop-out for us because there, we, we need to understand that as followers of Christ as well. But your faith should not be in people. It should be in Christ. Bearden wrote this, one last statement from him. He says, when someone leaves the church and says that they've met people who are more loving than those inside the church, I wonder if they're just choosing to be around easier people. The reason church life can be so difficult and be disappointing is because we don't choose these people. The church is made up of various individuals from various places. And while the church can be a messy, difficult place, it's a place that's unusually messy because it welcomes all. Love is not hanging out with people we like and then not judging others from afar. That's not love. Love is hanging out with people we may not always like. But then we push for growth so that we all become better. And for Christianity, that better is the person of Jesus Christ. So we're pushing one another to Christ, to follow him better, to become more like Christ. Now, I would say this to people that choose churches based on whether or not everyone in the church is like them or whether they like everything about the church. I would say you're choosing a church for the same reason as these that are choosing to walk away. You're choosing it because it's easier. It's okay if we're all different. It's okay. Because that makes the beauty of the church and following Christ even more beautiful. The fact that we can grow together despite differences. So for those questioning, deconstructing, seeking to understand, rather than writing everyone off as a hypocrite, recognize that the real battle is we're all sinners. That's the issue. Now, some are sinners choosing whether or not to, whether they're even going to follow Christ and accept the grace and truth of Christ. They're not in the faith. Some are sinners who have claimed and proclaimed the grace and the truth of Jesus, but they've never allowed the grace and truth to transform their life. Paul talks about this in his letter to Titus. You can find it in Titus chapter 1, verse 16. He starts talking about people that they proclaim this, but they haven't accepted it because they're not letting it change them. And then you've got some who are in their nature sinners, saved by grace through faith, and are doing what Paul said. They're working out their salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, they're growing, they're maturing, they're learning what it means to be a follower of Christ. They're learning what it means to walk in Christ's love. Still battling a nature that's sinful. Still battling a spiritual enemy that wants to pull them back into that nature. 
And here's the truth. Even the most faithful follower can give in to temptation. Even the, the one that looks like the most mature can have weak moments, can offend someone, can hurt someone. Because we're all vulnerable to attacks from our enemy, our spiritual enemy. And there's no denying that those in the church, that the church itself has abused its power in situations. We have hurt people that did not need to be hurt. There are people in, in positions in the church and Christians who are arrogant, they're harsh, they're unkind, they're unloving. They say things like that. And if you've been hurt by someone, if that's been done to you by a Christian, by a pastor, by a church, for what it's worth, I truly apologize because it kills me that that's happened. And I say for what it's worth because the apologies for me, I'm not, may not be the one that did it. It's always better when it comes from them. But as a representative of the church, it hurts because it's not what it's meant to be. And for those of us in the, in the faith, walking with Christ, we have to understand, we have got to always remember that the good news becomes bad news when we're bad news. It's hard to attract people to a gospel of grace and truth if we represent something that is totally opposite. So I hope you realize this morning that Jesus had zero tolerance for hypocrisy. God has zero tolerance for hypocrisy. But what he does have is unlimited grace for sinners who need forgiveness. And what Jesus taught us was how to forgive. And he taught us the importance of forgiveness. So if you have demonstrated hypocrisy in your life in some way to someone and you realize you've done that and you've hurt them or you've said something that hurt someone or you've caused hurt in some way, then what you need to do is you need to own it. You need to go to them. You need to repent. You need to seek forgiveness. It's, it's more than just coming around the altar and praying about it. It's taking action in it. If you've been hurt by someone, if you've been pushed away from the faith because of someone's hypocrisy, if you've been hurt or abused from the power of a church or a Christian, whatever the case may be, you've got to forgive. It's what Jesus taught us. You've got to forgive them. You've got to release that off of you and you've got to release them. Because that's what the church does. That's what Jesus has called to do. That called us to. That's what spirit-filled followers of Christ do. They, they, they repent to one another. They forgive one another. And then they keep showing back up and doing God's work together. Because we're all growing in this faith together. We're all learning together. We're all striving to be followers of Christ and to represent Him together the best that we can. Understanding we are human. We're not perfect. But God's still God. And He still works in us. And He still works through us. And He can still move. Stand with me this morning.
Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for what you teach us. God, it's so apparent you do not like hypocrisy. You don't want us to portray one thing, but let the thing that we say have no impact or effect on our heart and our life. God, help us to focus on our relationship with you. Help us to learn what it means to love you, to love like you. And if we do, Father, if we do that, you'll use that love. You'll use that to draw others through your Holy Spirit to you. God, if we've been hurt by someone today in the church, if we've been hurt by hypocrisy, if we've been pushed away by hypocrisy, God, help us today to forgive. And rather than causing us to walk away, help us, God, let us draw near to you, the one that has created in us the understanding of why that's wrong. God, as we draw close to you, we'll learn what it means to love. We'll learn what it means to accept your truth and we'll learn what it means to forgive. So help us in that today, God. If you need prayer in any way today, we would love for you to reach out to us. You can go to our website, bwccanvin.com, go to our contact page. You'll find a link there to request prayer or send us anything that you would like to communicate with us today. Or you can also simply text the word prayer to 803-676-7566 and we will be back in touch with you to find out how we can be in prayer for you. God bless you. We hope that you have a great week.